Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading emerging markets information and advisory services firm. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and proprietary data that help power their emerging market business strategies. The focus of today's podcast is planning for Cuba's opening. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group. I'm joined today by Antonio Martinez, FSG's Associate Practice Leader for Latin America. As a reminder, FSG's Cuba research and all of our content is available via our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com or via your FSG iPad application. Antonio, welcome. Thanks, Rich. Great to be here. The timing for today's discussion couldn't be better between President Obama's trip to Panama for the Summit of the Americas and also because we're receiving many, many questions from our client executives regarding the emerging opportunity in Cuba. And so I'd like to use our time today to answer as many of these questions that we've heard as possible. Why don't we start with a basic question about timelines? Where are we right now in the normalization of relations process and what still has to happen in your view? Well, we're still actually in the, I would say the U.S. and Cuba are still in the process of, of actually finalizing that normalization. Uh, and diplomatic normalization is what I'm speaking about. Um, and basically what's where we are now is in a kind of a third round of negotiations, mostly uh, dealing with uh, getting uh, Cuba out of the, uh, I say, the t- terrorism list um, and essentially allowing the, the U.S. government to finally have formalized and have a, an actual embassy in Cuba. Um, this was supposed to happen by this week before this uh, Summit of the Americas that's slated for uh, the 10th and 11th. Um, what we see is that that's come to a, I would say, a temporary stop, um, I think mostly to do with some uh, uh, worsening relations between the U.S. and Venezuela, uh, which got underway. But basically what we should expect over the next few weeks and months is continued uh, negotiations, um, mostly to deal with uh, uh, kind of normal re- diplomatic relations, but also to some smaller extent uh, relating to some uh, a loosening of economic uh, trade and financial restrictions. What's your best estimate regarding the timeline uh, when we could say that the uh, economic restrictions are uh, lifted and the diplomatic sanctions are lifted in such a way that uh, a multinational, one of our clients, could start to think about entering the market? Well, a lot of that, I would say, depends on how quickly the, the, both Cuba and the U.S. government can come to an agreement on some of these basic diplomatic issues. I think the overall economic restrictions is going to take some time. In my opinion, it probably is something that at best would come in after elections in the U.S. next year, because we don't expect that this current government would be able to get an actual lifting of the Cuban embargo through the current Republican Congress. So no shift can be expected until after those elections. What we can expect is for some industries, such as the telecom industry, as well as some some other technology and uh, food companies, that they will actually still be able to see a little bit of easing over the next 12 months. But for most companies, if you're looking at kind of a lifting of sanctions, it's going to be a while. I want to dig into the sequencing of sanctions in a moment. But before we do that, let's just talk a little bit about what's driving this. Many believe this has been a long time coming, but what are the drivers externally and internally and why now? Why is Cuba seeking normalization? Well, it's a mix of both 
external and internal driver. I'd say the biggest external driver for Cuba is that Cuba is receiving much less support from Venezuela, which would be obvious given the very problematic economic situation that the Venezuelan government is facing. We've seen a very steep decline in terms of support through uh, of oil flows into Cuba from Venezuela. So that means Cuba needs to find another source of external revenues. And what they're looking at right now is they need to move towards that with the U.S. because any other plan, whether you're looking at Brazil, which is another regional partner that uh, they've been growing uh, increasingly close to, that market is also not going to be one of, of great support. So that's one important factor. We also see that coming from the U.S., the Obama administration, there has been interest since 2009 in easing relations with the Cuban government. But what we see now is that basically the Obama administration is almost coming to an end, and that they have decided that this is a, the right moment to try to get a few things done that they probably couldn't get done politically earlier on. And when you add to that all the internal drivers, and I say the most important internal driver for Cuba is simply that, well, the Cuban government has been trying to implement uh, some pretty significant economic reforms over the last, I would say, almost the last five years. And what we can see is that uh, these economic reforms, while they have significantly changed the situation for many uh, everyday Cubans, hasn't had quite the impact on uh, driving up uh, the overall economy. Give me a, a quick snapshot of the current state of Cuba's economy, just to put some, some numbers and perspective around it. Well, the Cuban economy, it's still a predominantly a state-managed economy where the, the government is by far the most important driver of business is driven by government initiatives. What I would say is that the Cuban government has been attempting over the last few years to increase the relative importance of the private sector and increase in foreign investment as well as uh, the private investment in, in, in the economy. But to be honest, when you look at the Cuban economy, it still is one that, uh, relative to expectations, has seen uh, very weak growth uh, over the last two decades and still is an economy that, particularly if you're looking at it as a consumer uh, opportunity or any other kind of business opportunity, remains relatively weak. If Cuba opened up tomorrow uh, and you were a LATAM executive, where would you slot this opportunity in the portfolio vis-a-vis -vis the other markets in the region? Most multinationals that we work with, most of them have very limited overall presence in Cuba today, although obviously there's some exceptions with some European companies and even some uh, multilatinas having some presence in Cuba. I would say it basically, even if you see just from a GDP standpoint, or at least with the GDP that we see, uh, the economy would look like somewhere between the Dominican Republic and Ecuador in terms of total opportunity. But if we actually were dealing with numbers of how big the potential opportunity is in reality, um, it's probably far below those two markets and closer to what you might find uh, in, in a much less developed market, even if, if it has a population of 11 million. So unlikely to realistically change the trajectory or the portfolio allocation, at least in the near term for many of our executives, but something that everybody should be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would be, as again, for many of our clients, it would be simply from a place that you get zero revenue to somewhere where you would basically the opportunity, the only way the opportunity can go is up. So it would be attractive from that standpoint. But in terms of the total size of the opportunity, unless you see some pretty significant economic reform to basically drive up uh, both the, the development of an export platform for the economy as well as a consumer market, Cuba is not about to supplant uh, even a market that's problematic as Venezuela. 
anytime soon in portfolios. It's good perspective. And when you talk about industries, you, you mentioned briefly that if you're in some of the infrastructure, telecom or some of the infrastructure industries, that those might be the early winners. Are there any others that you know should benefit from an opening of Cuba disproportionately to, to others? You know, consumer, healthcare, I'm just thinking across different, you know, B2B sectors. Where, where do you see the biggest winners emerging? Well, any company that uh, is working in the tourism sector, that's definitely going to be a big driver of growth regardless. The Cuban government is very interested in, in reviving the sugarcane industry, any kind of food industries. They are really looking to supplant the amount of uh, the billions of dollars that they actually import even now from the U.S. So that's where you're going to see a lot of uh, focus, and that's where we see a lot of the new investment projects. Any kind of FMCG company, and you know, they're going to find a new market here. And that's a market that for the exception of a few companies like Nestle and to a certain extent uh, a few other multinationals that we've got household names from Europe, generally what you're going to find is uh, at least a growing consumer market, maybe one that today is not even spending at the level of uh, the Dominican Republic, but uh, you know, significantly higher than some of the other smaller markets. Uh, if you're looking in terms of a market where I'm a little bit more pessimistic uh, in terms of the industry, I would go with the healthcare sector, simply because it is, I would say, in my view, the Cuban government right now has very little interest in spending more on healthcare. They, right now, they're treating it as a cost center, looking for efficiencies as much as possible. And uh, what they're interested in is using the biotech and uh, pharma sectors as potentially an export platform. But as I'll mention when we talk about the dual currency situation, Cuba as an export platform is not very competitive at this point. Let's talk for a second about that dual currency situation and how our clients should think about that and when does that improve? For any of our clients that have experience with other markets with a dual or, or multi-tier exchange rate system, they always know that it's a probably not a good sign of the quality of macroeconomic management. Obviously, in the region, we've seen that in Venezuela and Argentina. In Cuba, actually, it's even worse. Basically, the government treats its change rate policy as its monetary policy. And so what basically this means is that the average Cuban generally has access to the, the non-convertible currency, the CUP, while the CUC, which is what maybe if you're a tourist in the market uh, and what the Basically, the government gets from it from multinationals operating in the market today, either through joint ventures or whatnot, as well as tourists, uh, they get a much more overvalued exchange rate. And essentially what this means is that when you're looking at the average wage of, the, of a Cuban on the island, it's actually lower than you would find even in, in Haiti, uh, which has had the lowest per capita income in, in the region. But the Cuban government receives a much higher valued exchange rate. And basically, that's their taxation. Um, And they use this to fund the state-run enterprises. What this basically means is that Cuba uh, has an overvalued currency as an exporter and has a punishingly low income consumer market, at least in terms of the official wages. And until that changes, basically, Cuba as an export platform, as well as a contractive consumer market, is incredibly difficult, along with all the other uh, distortions that this dual exchange rate system creates for basic business operations in the, in the, in the market. Let's talk a little bit about the business environment. Um, Cuba has had foreign direct investment over the last two decades, maybe not from the United States, but as you mentioned, from uh, European multinationals and, and other 
other multinationals. What what can you say about that business environment? What has your research told you about the experience of those multinationals? Has it been successful? Has it been a rough rough ride? G- give us a sense of what it's like to do business in Cuba if the doors opened tomorrow. You hear a lot of in the kind of in the press uh, about how Cuba today is more open to foreign investment than ever. Um, that's actually not true, or at least it's not true because essentially in the 1990s, actually, there was even more of a push for foreign investment. And you saw a lot of companies basically rush into the Cuban market for many of the same reasons companies are really excited, or at least many companies are really excited about the potential opportunity that Cuba offers. What essentially happened was that many companies came in, and then eventually the Cuban government uh, decided to uh, it was time to clamp down. And I would say even today, uh, the Cuban government isn't particularly enthusiastic about foreign investment, even if they know that they need to attract a significant amount of foreign investment. When we look at the numbers in terms of the numbers of companies that have joint ventures and private investment that's come into the market, it's pretty easy to say that the majority of them have failed or have been shut down one way or the other by the Cuban government. And But again, there's a tiny minority of companies, I say, a company like Leslie and some of the companies that uh, work very closely with the Cuban government when it comes to oil extraction and a couple of other industries, they have done at least somewhat well. But the important thing to note is that Cuba is a completely other uh, beast in terms of how to manage this market. And it is orders of magnitude even more complicated than operating in a market like Argentina. We're starting to bump up against time, Antonio, but I thought we could um, maybe go into a little bit of a rapid-fire mode, because in your research, you discuss four key operational considerations that our clients must be mindful of regarding doing business in Cuba, and I thought maybe in a quick fashion, we could hit the high points of each. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. So first, you suggest that clients be skeptical regarding the market potential of Cuba. I sense that that's an undercurrent throughout our conversation, but, but could you be a bit more specific of why? Oh, yeah. It's two points. First, government data is very much unreliable. And I would say the big drivers behind that is simply that, first, the government is overestimating the size of the service sector. And second, well, you're still dealing with an economy that is predominantly command economy. And GDP itself is very much more difficult to to estimate uh, with with that kind of reality. The second big factor is that essentially the dual effects rate really exaggerates purchasing power. If you look at any graph that looks at GDP per capita over the last two decades, you would see basically uh, a really uh, steady but uh, strong recovery in per capita GDP levels. But when you actually look at in terms of how real wages have evolved, the real wages have remained at around less than a quarter uh, or about a quarter of uh, what they were in 1989. So it's a very different story once you kind of dig into the numbers. And that shows that for many of the, in terms of an impact for multinationals, much smaller opportunity than the numbers would suggest. Secondly, you believe that it's critically important that our clients develop expertise uh, about the sanctions and how the sanctions will play out. Talk a little bit about that. First point to take into account is that the sanctions are going to remain in place, regardless of whether of how quickly normal diplomatic normalization occurs between Cuba and the United States. Uh, the Cuban embargo, the Helms-Burton Act, will, uh, among others, will remain in place likely through the next couple of years, at the very least. And the other big factor is that non-U.S. multinationals are also in danger, especially if they're even considering having a little bit of business in the U.S., or obviously, if there's any financial transactions that go through the U.S. So basically, any company, even if they're not American, 
needs to take into account uh, the realities of the embargo as they're considering even pursuing market research on an opportunity in Cuba. Third, you talk about, uh, and it's tied to the sanctions expertise, but that multinationals really have to create an effective government engagement strategy to be successful, at least in the early days in Cuba. Yes, and a big reason for this is that the Cuban government remains with a very outsized role in the economy. And it is, to be honest, both an unreliable partner and an unreliable customer. And basically, for you to participate in the Cuban economy today, for the most part, you have to basically deal with them both as a partner and to a large extent as a customer. From a partner standpoint, the Cuban government has very often delayed project approvals for years, demanded majority stakes in, in joint ventures, and often wrestled control away from private sector companies. The reason we mentioned before why there's such a high failure rate when it comes to Cuba is because of the government, uh, let's just say their interests are not completely aligned with foreign investors. Uh, Another factor when we look at Cuba as an unreliable customer is that Cuba has a very well-documented history in terms of it, let's just say, falling on arrears in terms of the payments to providers. Many of the products that are supposed to come into Cuba, Cuba has often decided to just go ahead and uh, export them. So there's a lot of risk, and that creates a lot of, particularly if the sanctions are still still around, that creates a lot of compliance risk uh, in Cuba, um, as well as simply a lot of uncertainty in terms of your ability to continue to operate in the market. And then finally, the fourth operational consideration, which is uh, not insignificant, is the talent situation. Talk, talk about that talent situation in Cuba. When you're looking at Cuba, everyone always mentions the fact that, well, it actually has a very strong education level, but when we look at it overall... Cuba still has, because of simply the, the, the economic incentives that are created to some extent by the that dual exchange rate system, but also by a host of other restrictions taken by the government, it's actually very difficult to have a motivated labor force. And that's what many companies that are today operating in, in Cuba have faced. Often enough, Cuban workers are better off simply working in the tourism space or even kind of owning their own uh, very small business than it is to work for a multinational. And that creates serious problems in terms of uh, what you can expect from a productivity standpoint. And that's what you have to take into account. As much as Cuba has extremely uh, highly educated population relative to, say, other markets you might be used to in Latin America, that doesn't necessarily going to translate into a very productive workforce. Great. Antonio, I think we're up against time. I want to thank you for sharing these excellent insights. And I also encourage our listeners to read the full report uh, as we we hit the high points, but there's so much more in the report. And given that this is right now a top of mind market for our LATAM client executives, uh, I'd encourage uh, them to dig in uh, a little deeper. As a reminder, you can also speak with Antonio or any member of the FSG research team at any time by scheduling time via your FSG client relationship director. You can also access our Latin America research and our ever-expanding leading indicator data on our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance across your emerging market portfolio.